I've often said that the, the unconscious mind is the one that really creates the work, and the conscious mind simply edits it. Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a desk. Lights up. 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 A podcast by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. I'm Chase Parker, and I'm reading Fab. I'm Bronte Upshaw, and I'm reading Rainy. Lights up on the Fallopian Tube Literary Agency. Yes. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Fapp? Yes, what is it? I'm here to see Miss Calliope. Oh, you are? Really? Is she expecting you? I've tried contacting her, but she's not returning my calls. Oh. Well, I'm afraid Miss Calliope is unavailable. Where is she? Oh, that's rather difficult to say. At any rate, what can I do for you, Miss... Brightwater. Rainy Brightwater. That's my nom de plume. Ah, well, what can I do for you, Miss Brainwater? It's Brightwater. Some time ago, I sent Miss Calliope my manuscript. Uh, As of this minute, I've never received a response. When did you send it? Five years ago. And you've received uh, no word? No, nothing. Do you think she got it? Well, did you mail it with a self-addressed stamped envelope? I don't believe in postage. What do you think she did with it? You don't think she threw it away, do you? Oh, well, Miss Drainwater, let me assure you, the fallopian tube is not that kind of agency. So, what do you think she did with it? Hmm. Well, what was it titled? This manuscript of yours? It didn't have a title. I don't believe in titles. Where's Miss Calliope? I've got to get in touch with her. Well, I'm afraid that might be rather difficult. Oh? How so? I'm afraid that Miss Calliope's been put away. What do you mean, put away? Well, I mean, sectioned, Miss Bridgewater. In the parlance of modern psychiatry, Miss Calliope experienced what we might term... A psychotic episode. One morning, I found her writhing on this floor, making funny little gurgling noises. Mr. Fapp, you don't think she took my work with her, do you? You know, Miss Calliope once wrote me a very encouraging letter. Very encouraging. She said my work was, and here I quote, a heart-rending homage to the human spirit, unquote. So she actually read your work? Not all of it. I mean, I only sent her a paragraph, but then she insisted on seeing the whole thing. Well, I don't know how I can help you. I'm afraid I can't find anything without a title. Why don't you come back? I can't come back. She's got my work. I want my work. It was my only copy. All right, all right. Um, Calm down. What was your manuscript about? Perhaps I ran across it. Rowell's about this young girl. Uh, Raoul's a girl. No, of course not. He's a crocodile. You see, the main character in this is this young girl named Rainy, like me. Well, actually, she's this woman who feels this incredible sense of alienation and soul loss with the world and with men in particular, so she just retreats to her bed, vowing never to venture out again. 
Then one day, she hears the stirring underneath her bed, and then she, she looks under it. She finds this crocodile. No, maybe it's an alligator because the whole thing takes place in a swamp. Well, see, I once dated this guy from Florida, and his name was Floyd Ropper, and Floyd told me that they were different. Had something to do with the shape of the snails? Anyway, I think he knew what he was talking about because his mother got eaten by one. Hmm. Doesn't sound like there's much of a plot. I don't believe in plots. Anyway, this alligator or crocodile, he tells her his name is Raoul, and he's really her spirit animal, and he's there to lead her back to the underworld to reclaim her lost soul and find her authentic self so she can marry the right man and have babies and be really, truly happy. So she has all kinds of adventures down there, like she sees her sordid past, how she was abused by her kindly grandfather when she was three, how her boyfriends all cheated on her, how her girlfriends lied to her, and how her literature professor just pretended to like her stuff so he could sleep with her. So with the help of her magical friend Raoul, who's really her only true friend in all the world, she's able to recover and have a normal, healthy sex life again. What do you think? Oh, I think... I'd have to read the whole thing. Look, why don't you come back? Say, in a week. Bye. Or better yet, leave me your address. When I find it, I'll mail it back to you. You're just trying to get rid of me, aren't you? You're just saying that you look for my manuscript, but you have no intention of ever looking for it, do you? You don't think I have anything to say, is that it? Going to dismiss me, are you? Well, I won't let you. You're going to acknowledge me. You're going to acknowledge the genius of Rainy Brightwater. Here. What are you doing? What is that? It's my latest work. An incredibly inspired series of poems written on this board. Now, read. Can you stop shaking that thing? It's very distracting. Well, read it. All right. Give it to me. Blah, blah, blah by Rainy Nightwalker. It's Brightwater. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I'm a bit dyslexic. And they let you read manuscripts? Yeah, no one else will do it. Feel the rhythm, Mr. Fab. Notice the subtle play of alliteration. Feel the savage intensity beating within the cone. Notice how the lines build. Can you feel it? Doesn't it speak to you? All right, all right, enough. I've had enough. So, I wasn't wrong in coming in here today, was I? I mean, you like my work, don't you? Oh, yes, yes. It shows, um, it shows, well, promise. Now, Miss Trightwater, I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask... I'm not leaving. And it's Brightwater. I want my work. I know it's here somewhere. I'm not leaving. Not without Raul. He's the only friend I have. He's the only one who really, truly understands me. Um, is... Wait, wait. I think I found it. Yes, here it is. Raul by Rainy Brightwater. You found it. You found my work. Yes, it was under all this. Here it is. Tell you what. Why don't you take a real close look at it, make sure it's all there, while I make a quick call, okay? Okay. Hello? 
Mrs. Fapp, in literary. I'm afraid she's back. Mm, you'd better come get her. No, right away. Okay. Oh. Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? The ending, the way it turns out. Oh. The girl, I mean. You know what I think? I think this Brightwater woman has real talent, don't you? Yes, Miss Calliope. I think so, too. Lights fade. Hello and welcome back. We are beyond halfway through season four now. My gosh. Um, hi, Christy. How are you? I'm wonderful, Dina. How are you? I'm great. And today we are joined by the playwright of Come Back, Miss Calliope, Alan Kilpatrick. Hi. Hello. Hello. Greetings. Salutations from Belgium. I'm an American playwright, but uh, I've been over here about five and a half years. So. Uh, this is my home now. Amazing. We've we've had some far reaches with our playwrights here at Lights Up, but you are the first uh, person from Belgium, I believe, right? We haven't had anybody living in Belgium. So amazing. Thank you for joining us. So we got to listen to Chase Parker and Bronnie Upshaw bring your piece to life. So tell us a little bit about Comeback Miss Calliope. When did you write it and what inspired it? play was probably written some time ago. I'm not exactly sure. It's gone through several iterations, uh, I think at least 10 years ago, maybe. So it's made its way around around the United States, I must say. Um, what inspired me to write it is, um, well, I think it reflects the, the, the writer's angst. Um, that, uh, you know, it, it's a precarious uh, thing we do, uh, uh, writing. It's it's a curious phenomena. Um, I often say to people that if you want to be successful as a writer or have a long career, then you need to develop uh, at least two traits. Uh, one is uh, patience because uh, you send a manuscript out to a theater group or a, a venue and you may hear nothing for um, months or, or years or maybe never. Uh, so that's one aspect of, of, of it. And the other uh, quality I think you need to develop is persistence because, uh, uh, you know, if you do this for a long time, as I have, uh, you're going to experience and endure an avalanche of rejections from all quarters of, of the earth. And so somehow you have to uh, keep your uh, self-worth intact and, and, and realize that uh, there's... Uh, you know, going to be a tomorrow of some kind for you as a writer. Well, I'm sure that um, part of the reason, I know Christy and I both loved Bronte's reading of this, of, of both of our actors, but in particular, we were, we were struck by Bronte. And I, I know Bronte, 
in real life. And she is a poet and a writer. So I'm sure she identified with some of that need for, for persistence and patience and the difficulties of life um, as well. What was it like to hear? I know you said you've heard a, a, a recorded radio version before, but what was it like hearing this recording? Uh, well, uh, I think in, in my experience, it's the best uh, interpretation I've ever heard of, of, of the piece, actually. And uh, as you're right, uh, the, the two actors are excellent, and they do a fantastic job with the material. You know, as a writer, you're always uh, at the mercy of, of actors, <laughs> you know, because uh, um, you can have a wonderful script and have a mediocre uh, interpreter of it and, and then you're in trouble so when you get some people who really can uh, dig in and, and bring the script to life it makes you as a writer look good so I was very pleased with it it's very close to what uh, I imagined it would sound like in my head so uh, that's always a good sign so how did you get your start as a writer and a playwright it's uh, an interesting story I uh, <clears throat> I gone down other avenues first, of course. I, I, I started actually writing for television. I wrote uh, some documentaries for KNBC in Los Angeles and d- did some educational films. And uh, then I got out of all of that, went into academia and taught at the universities for a number of years. So after that period of my life, I, I decided uh, got an interest in the in the theater and in the stage. Uh, I think uh, the genesis of my theater career uh, was, uh, I remember one time going to a theater to, to hear a new work by a well-regarded playwright. And um, it was one of the longest nights of my life because the play was excruciatingly dull and <laughs> boring. So when I got home, I, I said to myself, you know, my God, I think I can write something as bad as that. And, uh, <laughs> so I, um, truthfully, that's how I started to write. I, so I wrote a comedy called uh, Little Big Horn, which is my first full-length play. And uh, it got picked up and, and ran for a few weeks in a theater in uh, Albuquerque. And so that's how my playwriting career started. And when you were teaching, were you teaching um, writing or writing for film and television? Was it anything in the creative uh, field, or it was something totally separate? Well, it was no. It was really an anthropology and, and some psychology. So it was very uh, dry and theoretical. Uh, but I did learn quite a bit. I mean, in doing my own research about uh, uh, the way the mind works and uh, the importance of the unconscious. Uh, because in, in writing, you know, you have to rely quite a bit on your unconscious mind. Most people don't trust it, but it's uh, uh, that subterranean um, place that we go as writers and pick up these symbols and archetypal forms that lie buried beneath uh, are very important to, to uh, discover. So um, yeah. I've often said that the, the unconscious mind is the one that really creates the work and the conscious mind simply edits it. Does that reflect at all in your current writing process? Do you kind of free, free flow write, or do you get ideas in the middle of the night? Do you let things come to you and then edit later, or do you have a more prescribed 
process when you write? Well, I think both. I, uh, it's very hard to say where ideas come because sometimes you read something in the newspaper and you, and you say, that's a very interesting story. And, uh, or you have a dream about something or someone. Or, or, but I usually uh, <clears throat> put those things on hold until I hear the voice of the character. Uh, and and then uh, once that character sort of speaks, I, I have a better sense of where I'm going to go with this particular thing. It's a curious uh, fact that uh, you can write a hundred plays, but if every time you start out to write a new play, uh, you start at square one. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you say to yourself, okay, um, what... what um, Whose story is this? How many characters do I need to tell the story? Um, how is the audience going to react to this? Are they going to be shocked or surprised? Is anyone willing to pay 50 bucks and drive out on a rainy night to see this thing? These are the kinds of you know questions that haunt you as you begin to write. Uh, typically, when I've got a play, I after many rewrites, I, sometimes I do as many as 20 rewrites on the script to, to get it correct, even if it's a very short script, because it's a little bit like a watchmaking. All the little pieces have to fit together, um, <clears throat> especially in short plays. So with Miss Calliope, I mean, you just talked a moment about um, the audience reaction and audience response. Uh, what is it you're hoping an, um, a listener will get from from Miss Calliope's journey, it's 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 quite a it's it's one with many ebbs and flows to follow. Well, I, I think uh, Miss Calliope is like most of us, uh, or her blind to her own faults. She's um, living in self delusion, um, uh, and she rationalizes it. I think this is wonderful when to watch how people rationalize their behavior to other people. But I think it's it's, it's that's really the, the crux of the piece. It's about uh, how we can delude ourselves into believing things that we're... And also, the, the I think it uh, addresses the issue of uh, the, the human need to connect, to communicate with someone. She's desperately trying to have some sense of self-worth again. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of trauma in her background, too, that you layered in there. So she's quite a complex character who's, you know, if you used to believe that, um, you know, uh, Rainy Brightwater's story is her story, then there is some complex trauma and longing. And she actually is quite a strong woman. And, you know, that that sense of persistence that you mentioned is is also there in her, which is, um, I think, really important. So it. It's um, it's very complex. It was very layered. But she's full of contradictions, as we all are. <laughs> uh, that's what I actually love about many of the characters. The most interesting characters are those who feel riddled with their own, can't get out of their own way, so to speak. You know. Um, yeah. I I heard it said once that the one of the most challenging things to our self-awareness can be when we hear our excuses come out of somebody else's mouth and how we respond to that. And when you're talking, that was one of the things that came to mind when you were talking about this, that struggle of justifying our own behavior and our, um, well, even just 
you know, those windows, the four pane windows of awareness, right? Just stretching those out and learning more about ourselves. And it can be really painful and it can be really exposing. And um, I think that's an interesting thing to explore for sure is our human side to to justify. One of the things in my family that we talk about when it comes to justification is secret food. Does anyone else have secret food where you just kind of like, you know, you're out and about for the day and you're like, I'm just going to pop in and get a quick pastry before I go home. And it's just like your own like little special delight and you justify it, but it's, you know, it could just be something as whimsical as behavior like that, but we all have areas where we can justify. And um, so I really, yeah, I really enjoy that you explore that. You know, I wanted to say one thing about uh, uh, more about Calliope, if I could. Uh, it's just that I, I uh, enjoy working in that particular medium of the audio world and I've come late to it uh, it's my sixth audio drama to be aired, and uh, uh, I've had a few full links done uh, in, in the UK, but uh, I really enjoy that, the possibilities of working in that medium because of the, what you can do with voice and sound effects and that special intimacy that you create with your listener, and uh, you can't really replicate that. Um, on the live stage. So, um, and also there's this sort of spatial versi- uh, versatility, you might say, uh, you know, and it's very liberating to a writer, I think, to, to have those possibilities open to them. So that's why I enjoy writing audio plays. Mm, the possibilities are truly endless. There's very few limitations indeed. Um, you've mentioned that you have done full length and you've done shorter one-act plays, uh, you've had things staged, and you like radio plays. Um, what other genres have you... So you mentioned also television and documentary. Um, is there anything else that you've done within your writing career, or one that's particularly your favorite, one you haven't done but want to do yet? Uh, at some point, I'd like to try a one-person show. Mm. I haven't done that yet, <clears throat> and, but it would... Involved, I'm not the kind of uh, playwright that's that hands-on. I'm one of those uh, writers who subscribes to the blueprint theory that uh, the script is only the blueprint, and and uh, we allow directors and actors <clears throat> freedom to to interpret the material. Mm. Uh, because I'm Native American, also uh, my mother was a full-blood Cherokee and my father was Irish, so I've spent most of my life navigating through those two worlds. Uh, and as a writer, I find that um, I end up writing for two distinct audiences. Um, and so what has that shown up, um, you know, in your writing as well? Have you done any plays centered around that? Oh, yes. I, I've written a number of plays uh, for sort of Native American audiences, you might say. In fact, I, I have a comedy called The Witch of Buggy Depot. When you work uh, and write for uh, a native audience you are uh, there are a few issues that come up that are somewhat different than a mainstream audience i would say and here's an example for the the, the witch play uh, we uh, created a flyer uh, which uh, featured an owl caught in mid-flight which is staring at you with the great big eyes <laughs> well because this play was based on some Choctaw folklore, 
we wanted some input from the indigenous community. And uh, we found out that uh, some of the traditionalists were very uncomfortable with that image because it connotes you know, the culture of death, witchcraft, bad luck, and mm. negative energy, I guess. Anyway, as a result of that, um, to be culturally sensitive, you might say, we had to replace the, the image of this sort of necrotic bird of prey with um, something more innocuous, and, and we came up with a, a close-up of a pocket watch mm. because the pocket watch has, is relevant to the plot. So that's, that's some of the issues that come up when you work and write for, um, I guess, what we call global majority audiences now. You have to be much more aware of what you're putting on the stage. Yeah, I mean, symbology runs so deep, and um, we can't only... Um, assume that what we know is who we're marketing to anymore you know it's like what my experience is as a straight white woman in the world is not the experience of everybody else in the world and so um that's something that i think is really great that you know we're opening up saying okay well when someone sees this image what do they what do they see you know and owls for example i know i i don't know all of the symbology that that they hold but um i know that's can mean many different things to many different people across different cultures. So, yeah, I just point these out because it's 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 a very interesting facet of of the sort of dance that writers have to do to appease everyone. What do you feel has been one of the biggest, I'll say, cultural or even social changes that has affected writers in particular since in in the span that you've been writing? Well, I think people are much more sensitive about the portrayal of their their race, their ethnicity, their identity. I think all of that's come to the forefront here recently, especially in the last 10 years or so. Um, when I worked in television, I was probably one of the very few Native American writers but now there are quite a few Native American writers, and there are even uh, television series that are uh, written and produced by Native American. But I was very fortunate. I got a chance to meet with and work with some very special people. Mm -hmm. I worked with Marlon Brando, for instance, on, on the series. He narrated it. He showed up. He, he knew his lines. He didn't cause trouble. He seemed to <laughs> enjoy working with us. So. Wow. Um, that's a yeah. that's a feather in your cap you saved <laughs> to tell us yeah. now, Marlon yeah. Brando. <laughs> yeah. This was years ago, but you know. Do you feel like it's gotten easier or more difficult to get work uh, exposure of your work and work produced? Um, that's an interesting question. I I think I think um, it sort of builds on itself. I th people ask me, you know, how, how do you how do you get started and wherever you are? And uh, the answer is you two things, I think. One is you, you have to create a body of work, first of all. You have to have enough material to market it. You have to have short plays, long plays. You have to have dramas. You have to have comedies. You have to have this and that uh, so that uh, you can market your work. And that takes a long time to develop. And, and you have to develop your craft as you go along. And uh, also, you have to have a, a belief in yourself. 
I remember years ago working with a, a very famous comedian. Uh, he did uh, the narration on an educational film I, I wrote, and uh, we were in the studio looping uh, one day. And uh, I, so I asked him, I said, you know, how did you get started and how did you know you were going to become what you became? And he said that uh, he originally started in the Midwest. He came from the Midwest and... Uh, and he went to New York to do the stand-up comedian route, and uh, he had twenty dollars in his pocket. And he said, "But I knew that I was going to make it. I, was, I knew I was going to be famous, and so I just did it." Wow. So you know, it's that kind of belief that you have to have as, as an artist uh, in your own creative abilities uh, to get you through these long periods if you're going to have a long career because there's going to be peaks and there's going to be valleys. Patiently persistent, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. My, my, my formula the, for yeah. the successful writer right? <laughs> or the unsuccessful writer too, I suppose. <laughs> Do you have a piece of work right now that you most want people to know you for? And the answer probably is I am, I don't know really. I, I I think there are three or four pieces that I think uh, when all is said and done, uh, hopefully those will survive in some form. I like to be like Verdi. You know, Verdi was still working on uh, the next opera when he when he keeled over, <laughs> kind of like Sisyphus. Well, just like Sisyphus rolling up the the stone up the hill. You know, that's a good image for. Me. It's an obsession. I think you have to, you have to do it. You're just like when you exercise regularly and your body feels it needs it. Uh, the same thing with writing. When you've done it as long as I've done it, you, you have to do it. So, Alan, what we usually do is, um, Christy and I always ask um, all of our playwrights the same three questions to end on, and um, they're just simple kind of getting to know you questions. And then uh, before we do that, we always give our playwrights just a moment. We kind of hand over the metaphorical mic to you um, to list if you are on social media or if you have a website or, or the best way that our listeners can follow you and keep up with your work. Uh, well, they can actually uh, uh, look at my work on the New Play Exchange, which so many playwrights, so many hundreds of us are on there. And you can see thousands of plays that are listed there. So I'm there along with all of my colleagues and all of my... Uh... Excellent. Our listeners are well acquainted with New Play Exchange. So if that is the best place for them to find you, we will direct them there. All right, Mr. Allen. So we, were, we will launch into our wrap-up. So I will take the first question, which is, do you have a particular word that you would consider either a favorite word or a word that uh, you enjoy saying or you delight in for any reason? Um, cochon, <laughs> which is French for pig, <laughs> because we've had a number of bulldogs and, and they kind of make that snorting noise, as you know. <laughs> we have three dogs, by the way. And I have one dog that, is, curiously enough, watches television. It's the only dog I've ever known that is a serious television watcher. So, uh, Does it have a favorite show? Uh, no, but it, it, uh, it waits for any animal to come on so it can bark at it. So <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is. But 
but it's it's very very odd <laughs> to sit there on the couch with this dog and watch television the second well for i think that's the first time we've ever had someone i just wanted to point out ever answer in another language you are our first playwright to ever answer with with a non-english word a french word at that too uh, very sophisticated uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not that sophisticated <laughs> Um, the second question we always like to ask is, do you have a favorite or most cherished or perhaps nostalgic um, place that you love? I've lived in many places, uh, you know, in many countries, Sweden, Spain. Uh, I've lived in Peru. I've lived in Belgium and the United States, of course. Uh, uh, but for some reason, I, every time I go through Williams, Arizona, which is this little town up in the mountains there, I always feel extre- extremely happy. Oh. <laughs> and I can't explain it. And it's, I haven't been there in years and years, but uh, the three or four times that I, that ha- that I passed through, I, I had this sort of out-of-body uh, experience and connection with that place, and I don't know why. Maybe I had a past life there. I, I wonder if that's the case. So, yeah, um, I would say Williams, Arizona. Yeah, that's my vote. All right. Final question: Do you have a item in your life that is particularly dear to you? You know, kind of your your house is on fire, and you're going to grab it before you run out the door. Well, I, I think if I, if my house was on fire, I, I'd probably grab my passport first. Um, yeah. Uh, maybe the uh, I have a turtle ring that uh, uh, it's a turquoise ring. It's made by a Zuni craftsman, and it's about 70, 80 years old. Uh, belonged to my mother actually, and after my mother's death, I I took the ring and in remembrance of her, and I I have worn it uh, um, for many years. So I, I would say that's probably my most treasured item. Yeah. Beautiful. It's this turtle ring for long life and good luck, it, it symbolizes. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing to share on Mother's Day. That, that's a yeah. very, yeah, that's a very beautiful thing. Yeah. Perfectly appropriate. Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, thank you so much, Alan, for joining us. We really appreciate it, especially we know time zones and countries and such, um, you know, we always appreciate our, our out of, out of country <laughs> playwrights who <laughs> schedule all of this with us. So thank you. Yes. Thank you. Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theater company located in Southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the expressed written consent of the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. The plays presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you are interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or a reader, please shoot us a message at lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ATC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast.
Tennessee is pleased to announce that the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga and the Lights Up Podcast are grant recipients to the Sustaining the Humanities Through the American Rescue Plan grant program. A program made possible by the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, approved by the U.S. Congress and signed into law on March 11. Because of this program, Humanities Tennessee is able to provide $941,454 to 91 organizations throughout the state. The purpose of SHARP grants is to support jobs in the humanities, keep humanities organizations open, and assist the field in its response to and recovery from the needs created or exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. These grants may focus on humanities projects or leveraging operational support stemming from the devastating impact of the coronavirus pandemic. They may also help organizations plan for the future and begin the long process of response and recovery to the pandemic. ETC and the Lights Up Podcast would like to thank Humanities Tennessee and the National Endowment for the Humanities for this amazing opportunity.